0: Well, good morning. This morning we're going to be working our way through Genesis 16, so please have your Bibles open to Genesis 16 as we look at the story between Abram and Sarai and also Hagar and Ishmael. I've titled the message of my sermon, the God who hears and sees. Is there anything, anything as hard as waiting? Waiting patiently is incredibly difficult. It's incredibly difficult, isn't it? Why? Because it means we have to trust something or perhaps someone outside of ourselves we don't get to do things or have something in our own timing in our own way and especially on our own terms instead we must wait for that which we want so badly this is why waiting is so difficult. I'm convinced that waiting though is a key component of the Christian life. And maybe some of you know this from firsthand experience. Have you ever noticed how often in scripture we are called to wait upon the Lord? Psalm 27:14. Wait for the Lord, be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait For the Lord. Psalm 130, 5 through 6. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in His Word, I hope, my soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than the watchman for the morning. And I could go on. Why does God call upon us to wait? To wait upon Him. Waiting is something God makes us do because it forces us to trust in Him. It forces us to trust in Him rather than in ourselves, doesn't it? In fact, it forces us to trust in His sovereign plan rather than in our own ingenuity. It forces us to trust in his divine providence rather than in our own roadmap. It forces us to trust in his divine wisdom rather than in our own intelligence. You see, waiting is something that actually builds faith. It builds faith. Faith upon God and faith in his word. This morning as we come to Genesis 16 where Abram and Sarai will wait and wait upon the Lord we're going to see that in this chapter they're going to wait no longer. Instead they've decided that they are going to move on perhaps even without him. Last week In Genesis 15, we saw God do this unbelievable act to send down to Abram and to cut a covenant with Abram, promising to give him a son who would be his own heir, an heir that would result in offspring as numerous as the stars in the sky. What a contrast, then, Genesis 15 is with the start of Genesis 16. You notice the complete tension that sits here in the text. Genesis 16 begins, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. No children. There's a tension here, isn't there? God has made a promise, but it has not yet come true. And with such attention comes a test, a severe test for Abram and Sarai. Will they wait upon the Lord? Will they trust in the promise the Lord has made to them? Or, Will they try to take matters into their own hands? Will they become impatient and labor to bring about the promise by their own creativity, by their own works, even? We'll find out what the answer is. We're going to look at Genesis 16. I want to start in verse 1. Focus on verses 1 through 3. In many ways, Sarai is a woman who repeatedly struggles to trust the Lord. We're going to see this. This isn't the last time we're going to see this. Rather than waiting on God's timing to fulfill his promise and give her a child as he promised from her own womb, she takes matters into her own hands. Essentially, she's tired of waiting. Verse 3 says that Ten years, ten years had passed from the time that they had entered into the land of Canaan. And on top of this, she recognizes that she is, well, childless and barren. The Lord has not opened her womb. There's a strong affirmation in this text that... This is something the Lord does, and the Lord has chosen not to open her womb. So she thinks she must act. She must act herself to make the promise of an heir a reality, and she must act fast. So what does she do? Seeing the hopelessness of her state and fed up with waiting upon God, she concocts a plan. Abram, you go and and I'm going to give to you my Egyptian slave, Hagar. And Hagar will be the one who will bear you a child on my behalf. Of course, Abram's attitude and his actions are not praiseworthy either. Throughout this story, you'll notice just how passive he is. I want you to to notice the parallels throughout the story with what takes place in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve and the serpent. Like Adam in the garden, who is silent, only to then listen to Eve and eat the fruit that was forbidden by God, so Abram listens to Sarai and takes Hagar. Here's a, a fundamental failure on Abram's part, to resist temptation. Rather than waiting upon the Lord to fulfill his promise in his timing, Abram buys into his wife's proposal. God, Abram must have been thinking, God isn't giving me an heir through Sarai. She's barren. So, I will just have to go for the next best thing. This this practice actually would have been quite common in the culture of the day. While this practice may have been the norm in the ancient Near East, in Abram's time, it was one that was inconsistent with the promise of God. And with Abram, it was something that was inappropriate for the man of God. The consequences, the consequences are disastrous. Look at verses 4 through 6 and the strife between Sarai and Hagar. When, When we fail, When we fail to wait upon the Lord, when we take matters into our own hands, when we don't trust in God's promises, chaos, distress, disorder, strife, and hardship are the result. Hagar, she does become pregnant. But rather than Sarah, being pleased that her plan has succeeded, she becomes absolutely furious. Look at verse 4. It says that Hagar suddenly begins to look at her mistress with contempt. In other words, she became prideful, rubbing, rubbing salt into the wound boasting that she had conceived while Sarah had not and could not, exalting her own status above that of her Lord. Hagar's pride, though, it's going to be short-lived. Because as we read, what we discover is that it's going to be met twofold twice as strong by Sarai's vengeance. And this woman's whip will sting. Sarai becomes angry. In fact, she is so angry, she begins to just be consumed with hatred for Hagar. So much so that she now wants her dead. In Proverbs 30, It says in verses 21 through 23, it says there that there are but three things, three things that can make the earth tremble. You know what they are? In fact, it doesn't just mention three. It says there's three things that make the earth tremble. And then there's a fourth thing. And the fourth thing, the earth can't even begin to bear. It can't hold it up. The three things are this. Three things that make the earth tremble. Number one, a slave who becomes a king. Number two, a fool when he is filled with food. And number three, an unloved woman when she gets a husband. But do you know what the fourth thing is? What is is the fourth thing that completely shatters the earth? What is... What is so heavy in its wrath that not even the earth itself can hold it up. Proverbs 30:23 A maidservant when she displaces her mistress. That is exactly what is going on in Genesis 16. Sarah, I cannot stand the fact that her slave, her maidservant, is now displacing her. The maidservant has become the mistress. Sarah's actions only get worse, don't they? Look at verse 5. She goes on, and, and she goes to Abram, and notice what she says. She blames Abram. Sometimes tragedies in Scripture are so tragic, they're almost comical, are they not? She blames Abram that her own plan has turned out badly. And notice the tone in her voice. May the wrong done to me be on you, Abram. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between me and you. I hope you see in this phrase... In these sentences, I hope you sense the anger and the bitterness in Sarai's voice. She doesn't take responsibility for her actions. After all, it was her plan. But instead, she becomes infuriated, not only with Hagar, but now with Abram, blaming him for what took place. Not that he's not responsible himself. Again, Notice Abram's response. is far from praiseworthy. His passivity in the situation, it only continues. He tells Sarai to do with Hagar whatever she pleases. And here, here is a very angry and bitter woman who, is displaced, who has been displaced by her maidservant, and you are going to tell her to do whatever she wants with her. This is a bad move by Abram. Surely, Sarai is going to take her revenge. And this is exactly what happens. In verse 6, it says that Sarai, she dealt harshly, very harshly with Hagar. In fact, so harsh that Hagar feels the need to literally flee away to run away from Sarai into the wilderness. She would rather risk wandering in the wilderness as a pregnant woman through the desert back to Egypt than stay under the brutality of her mistress. Are you beginning to sense how brutal this situation has become? The disunity in Abram's own house? What a mess this is. What a mess. Distrust in the Lord, sexual immorality, contempt, pride, arrogance, anger, bitterness, haughtiness, revenge, abuse. These are all words that describe this awful story. And these are words that describe how things go when we take matters into our own hands rather than trusting in the God who has promised to take care of us, to provide for us, and to fulfill his covenant promises to us. I'm so amazed how time after time after time it seems as if the story could just stop right here and God could just leave sinners to the consequences of their own sin. And it's right at that moment when we perhaps would do just that that God comes into the picture merciful, gracious, abounding, and steadfast. Love. It's at this point when God comes to the rescue of Hagar and promises to multiply her offspring. In verses seven through twelve, it's in the midst of this tragedy that God steps in once more to set things right, to display his mercy, to to exhibit his, his grace, to bestow his love. God could have left Hagar to die in the wilderness. After all, she isn't the woman through whom the promised seed is going to come. But he doesn't. He stoops down to Hagar. He is the God who sees all things, and he sees, he sees her. And he hears, he hears her and her pain, and he chooses to rescue. He chooses to rescue her, this servant, a nobody, an outcast, not even one of Abram's descendants. Verse 7 says that in this moment, the angel of the Lord came. And he, he found her. He found Hagar by a spring of water in the midst of this wasteland. In scripture, the angel of the Lord will often appear to God's people, this angel of the Lord is ma- it, it, it's the manifestation of God's presence. It's important to recognize that this angel of the Lord is not merely a representative of God, but actually is a representation of God. He is th- this angel of the Lord is a visible manifestation of the living God and probably appeared in some type of human form, though the text never tells us what this angel of the Lord looked like. This is why so often the Bible can speak of the angel of the Lord as the Lord Himself. The two are spoken of Interchangeably. They are indistinguishable at points. And this is the case in Genesis 16. What does this angel of the Lord say to Hagar? Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? People, it's not that God doesn't know the answer to his own questions. That's not why he's he's asking these questions. Aren't the parallels with the Garden of Eden unbelievable and fascinating? God posed a similar question to Adam and Eve after they had sinned. And then they were hiding in the garden. Having told the Lord that she was fleeing from her mistress, God's instruction It's plain and simple, but it's very hard. It's very hard to receive in light of the abuse that Hagar had received. He tells her, go back, Hagar. Go back and submit yourself to your mistress, Sarai, once again. Submit yourself to her. But the Lord doesn't leave her without hope. Now he promises that he will be the God who multiplies Hagar's offspring. And, they, and she too, and her offspring too, will be incredibly numerous. In verses 11 through 12, the Lord tells Hagar that she is to name her son Ishmael. Because in the midst of her hardship and the midst of her distress, the Lord listened to her affliction. The Lord listened and heard and saw this woman's affliction. You see, every time that Hagar would look at her boy in the years to come, she would remember that the Lord is the one who listens. He hears the cries of the afflicted and he cares for them. Nevertheless, this son that she is going to give birth to, Ishmael, he will be a wild and uncontrollable man. He will be, the text says, he will be like a wild donkey whom. No one can tame or control. He will always live in conflict with others, even his own family. So while Hagar will not be abandoned by God, and while the Lord has listened to her cries, and and while He has come to her rescue, nevertheless, the son she will bear will be a troublemaker. And it seems that the Lord may not just be speaking about Ishmael here, but about his descendants as well, and about an entire people group to come. They will be a troublesome people, a people often in conflict with the people that descend from Sarai. Which brings us to verses 13 through 16. God is the one who hears and sees the affliction of his people. I love how Hagar responds. Having been rescued by God and having been told to go back to this harsh mistress, she not only is going to obey the Lord, but she's going to say something and she's going to do something that no one ever does in Scripture. She is going to bestow upon God Himself a name. And what is this name? You are a God of seeing. People, do you understand that this is an Egyptian woman who came out of a context where her people worshipped many gods and these gods do not hear and they do not see. And her people will continue in this path. It is a path that will describe the Egyptians, when Moses comes on the scene. You are a God who sees, she says. You are a God who sees the distress and comes to their rescue, my rescue. See, God saw Hagar, He he knew and understood the abuse she had experienced under Sarai. He understood that she was ready to die in the wilderness alone. He was not blind to her agony, but he saw and then he acted to favor her. This nobody, this maidservant. And so she says in verse 13, Truly here I have seen Him who looks after me. I have seen the God of the universe and He is the one who not only sees me, but He looks after me. This God, she says, is a God who provides and a God who cares for a lowly, nobody servant like myself. Does this strike you as ironic? This name that she gives to God? At the start of Genesis 16, Abram and Sarai are struggling to trust in God. They're failing to trust in God. Ten years have gone by since they have entered into the land and still nothing has happened. They felt like God did not see them and as if God was silent. But at the end of the story, an Egyptian slave girl wandering aimlessly in the wilderness is seen and heard by God. And she is the one who gives and names God, the one who sees God, You are the God who sees me. She is the one whom the angel of the Lord comes and dwells with. And so she does something else. She names this well of water Bir Lahairoi. Bir Lahairoi which means the well of the living one who sees me. I wish I could say that the story from this point forward moves forward as one in which Abram and Sarai and Hagar learn their lesson and trust God from here on out. But it's, it's not. It's not, is it? They will fall and they will falter again and again and again. In fact, in in verse 15, it ends leaving the reader curious as to whether Abram really gets it. Does Abram really understand that Ishmael was not to be the heir that God had promised after all of this, does he still not understand? Hagar, notice, Hagar returns and Abram names his son. But when God appears to Abram once more in Genesis 17, reiterating his covenant promises that God himself will keep and announcing the birth of an heir through his wife, Abram puts Ishmael forward once more as the recipient only to receive the Lord's rebuke. Does that not amaze you? So at the end of Genesis 16, we have a very vivid picture, don't we? The fallibility of man who fails repeatedly to trust God's word. Isn't this a picture that you and I know? And yet, at the same time, we have a picture of God's love and mercy and compassion. Our God sees the afflicted, He sees the downcast. Our God hears the cries of those who are abused and weary. Pilgrims, as we learned in 1 Peter, elect exiles. Our God gives grace to the undeserving. And he is a God who has compassion upon those who have wandered very far away. Did you pick up on the fact that at the end of Genesis 16, Sarai is still barren, and Abram still doesn't have an heir. And one is not to come for many, many years. I can can imagine Abram and Sarai sitting there years after, after this happened. For Hagar came back and, and gave birth to this son, Ishmael. And as they sat there, this little boy ran around the tents as his mom called out, Ishmael, Ishmael, the Lord hears, the Lord hears. Can you imagine what a message And a reminder, it must have been to Abram and Sarai when after all their impatience with the Lord, Hagar returned and Abram named him Ishmael. It's as if God was saying every time he saw that boy, Abram, Sarai, why so little faith? Do you not know that I am the Lord who listens? Do you not know that I am the God who sees? Do you not know that I am the God who does not go back on my covenant promises? The whole story of the Bible shouts and sings Ishmael. And it sings it to you. And it invites you to sing along. Not just Abram, but Isaac and Jacob will take after their father. One moment they trust in God, the next they try to accomplish God's promises in their own timing and by their own strength. Israel ends up being the same way as are her kings. The Old Testament, it is one long story of man relying upon his own strength rather than than depending upon the promises of Almighty God. Is this not where the good news of the gospel brightly shines into the picture. The gospel doesn't come from within us, does it? It's it's not something that we accomplish by our own strength. It's alien to us. It comes from outside of us in order to redeem us. As Paul says in Ephesians 2, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, says Paul. Or listen to John in 1 John 4, 9 through 10. In this, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. You want to know what love is? You, wanna, you want to understand the love of the gospel? In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The incarnation of Christ, the gospel message, tells us that the name of the Lord is, You are a God of seeing. And what could display the sight of God more than the sending of his own son to bear the wrath of God that we deserve? Where do do you stand this morning? Are you outside of Christ, an unbeliever? who is trying to to find salvation on your own terms? Are you you trying to climb your way to God by means of your own strength and your own works? Friend, friend, if, if that is you... You only have condemnation and destruction waiting for you. Hear me loud and clear when I say, Stop trusting in yourself. And turn and rely entirely upon the gospel promise God has made through his son Jesus Christ. Redemption is is not found within yourself. Don't fool yourself. It comes outside of you, in Christ alone. But isn't there so much to learn here for believers as well? Did you start off trusting in God's promise of eternal life in Christ only to now run the race By your own strength and in your own way? Have you lacked faith by becoming impatient with God's timing and God's plan? Is that you? Are you angry at God? Because He doesn't appear to see my distress. And He doesn't he doesn't hear my cries. Have you acted foolishly, taking matters into your own hands instead of waiting upon the Lord? If so, have you forgotten that our God is a God who sees and a God who hears you? Have you forgotten that He is not one who lets His promises in Christ for you fall to the ground, void? Have you forgotten that the God who is now sanctifying you and leading you home is the same God who humbled Himself in the form of a servant in order to bring to fulfillment His promise of salvation in ages past? If so, then come, come with me with your buckets, buckets that have no water, and take your buckets and tip them deep, deep into the well of Beer Lahai Roy, the well of the living one who sees you. Let's pray. God, we are people who get so consumed with ourselves. We are a people, we confess, that have sinfully gone our own way. Even as those who have been redeemed by the blood of your own Son, we are a people who so often, so often, fail to trust in you, the God who sees and hears those who are afflicted. Lord, how we need this morning, Genesis 16, how we need to be reminded this morning that you you are a God who sees, you are a God who hears, and you have shown us that, you have proven that most visibly in the death of your own Son, Jesus Christ. Crushed for our iniquities, pierced for our transgressions. Lord, give us the strength by the power of the Holy Spirit to go from this place as your people and to live and to speak like Hagar. You are God who sees, and surely you will fulfill your covenant promises. We are not alone. You see us, you hear us, and most of all, you are for us. It's in the name of your son, Emmanuel, God with us, we pray, amen.